Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Thomas Blake Earle to tell us all about his book published by Cornell University Press in 2023, titled The Liberty to Take Fish, Atlantic Fisheries and Federal Power in 19th Century America, which is a really interesting history in some ways, of the American Revolution, but also going beyond that to help us understand what role commercial fishing had in both the kind of development of revolutionary intention and then what happens after independence, particularly between the United States and Great Britain, um, and kind of what the role of fishing continues to be in American politics in the decades after revolution. So the book does a lot of really interesting things through a lens that perhaps we're not as used to looking through. So Blake, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thanks. uh, Thank you for having me. Before we get into all things fisheries, though, would you mind, please, introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this? Uh, Not at all. Uh, So um, I am a uh, maritime historian. I uh, teach all manner of maritime-related classes at uh, Texas A&M University at Galveston. So if it has anything to do with the watery parts of the world, I certainly am interested in it. And uh, so this project uh, has its origins, like uh, like a lot of first books, in uh, just needing a uh, a dissertation topic to write about in, in graduate school. I uh, completed my uh, my degree at Rice University in in 2017, and I came in to grad school wanting to write about something related to American foreign relations during the during the 19th century. And very early on in my career, I kind of fixated on this uh, this fisheries issues thing. There was this big blow up in uh, 1852 that I that I discovered uh, kind of early in my uh, grad school career, in which you had uh, American and British diplomats really going at each other over this uh, you know question about commercial fishing in in the North Atlantic. And it's really from there that this project developed. Though I, I will say that. As I completed the dissertation and as I focused on uh, turning it into a book, the kind of more uh, kind of formal diplomatic history story in this book really kind of fell away in favor of looking at other actors who had a major role in this story, primarily fishermen and the fish themselves. Really, the environmental side of the story, the maritime history side of the story is really what I found uh, not only uh, kind of the the most intriguing and the most interesting aspects of this story, but really I, I think the most uh, the most important. Uh, you know, something that I wanted to do with this book is show how uh, politics, how diplomacy is uh, is not isolated from this whole range of actors, uh, in, including you know the the environment itself, including the fish. They certainly have. Uh, an important role to play uh, to play in this story that I wanted to to very much focus on. Wonderful. Thank you for that backstory and kind of for mentioning a bunch of things I think we'll talk about in more detail. Um, in order to situate it in our audience's minds, kind of the importance of fisheries from a political and like public perception standpoint, can you help us understand why fisheries and independence were so tied in the minds of um colonial or then U.S. statesmen and the general public? Yeah, so you you are right to point out that uh, 
much of the importance of commercial fishing in the North Atlantic in, you know, kind of American history over the first century of independence uh, comes from this close relationship in the minds of statesmen and the minds of ordinary Americans between these cod and mackerel fisheries in the North Atlantic and the very idea of independence. And to really understand why there was this close relationship, we really have to understand the place of fishing and the place of fishermen uh, in the American Revolution. And, you know, my work really builds on the work of another historian, Christopher Magra, who wrote this fantastic book about uh, fisheries, fishing, and uh, the coming and the course of the American Revolution. And quite simply, uh, fishermen contributed mightily to the uh, to, to the cause of American independence and to the Revolutionary War, uh, fishing schooners and fishermen kind of formed the the nucleus of the of the first U.S. Navy during the war. Uh, uh, fishing the, the fishing industry provided uh, a lot of manpower not only to the Navy but also to the Army as well. So fishermen very much so fought for. Uh, the independence of the United States, and in the decades after the war, the, uh, the 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 political community of the United States certainly remembered that contribution. There was this direct connection between uh, the fishing industry and this idea of independence. In fact, uh, in the 1790s, Congress passed a uh, a, uh, a a bounty bill that. Uh, kind of directly subsidized the fishing industry under the assumption that the fishing industry needed to be supported, needed to stay alive because it provided uh, this kind of class of, of sailors that the Navy would need in times of crisis. Throughout the 19th century, you constantly see this reference to the fisheries as being the nursery of the nation's seamen. This is the phrase they use over and over and over to support the interest of the fishing industry because during the revolution, uh, it was very much so these these fishermen, these maritime laborers who played this important role in uh, fighting for uh, American independence. And, uh, and beyond that, uh, it was uh, in the uh, negotiations between the United States and Great Britain that concluded the, uh, the, the Revolutionary War in the Treaty of Paris. There, there is an article that directly addresses the, uh, the, the, the fisheries question. Uh, one of the articles of the Final Peace Treaty granted Americans the the liberty to take fish. This is you know where I get the title of my book from, and so here at the very kind of birth of American independence, we see this uh, kind of direct connection between fishing, between the fishing industry, between this marine resource and political independence. So there's a lot that happened in the 1770s, 1780s, 1790s that cemented this relationship. And so once, you know, we do have a kind of American political independence, there is this sense that uh, defending the fisheries is essentially a defense of independence itself. And that's really why uh, the fisheries become such an important 
kind of topic for American statesmen and American politicians, because it seems as though that if the United States is not able to defend uh, this this right, this liberty, these fisheries, then how could it defend its independence more generally? So right, so so we see so we see these fisheries, we see the the the, the fishing industry. Uh, very much so at the birth of American independence that 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 assures this uh, this close connection. Mm. No, that's incredibly helpful to situate this. So thank you for introducing us to that. Expanding it out a little bit, kind of not just the importance in the minds of the politicians and the public. You have this great sentence in the book, quote, ocean fisheries are extraordinarily well situated prism through which to study statecraft. Why? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, the fact that fisheries, ocean fisheries in particular, are just so difficult to regulate, to control, to legislate. Uh, and, and this you know, certainly is a theme throughout the book of just how ill-prepared diplomats are to uh, – controlling, dealing with these ocean fisheries. And I think it's kind of, there's two major reasons why, um, you know, these fisheries expose the, the, the shortcomings of statecraft. And one is that they are necessarily international in nature, in nature. Uh, these fisheries touch on the sovereignty of many different nations. Uh, many different nations uh, use uh, this resource. So you're necessarily uh, in looking at ocean fisheries are, 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 are going to be forced uh, to look at how states deal with each other, how states interact with each other, and how foreign policy is created and executed. And then the kind of other part of what predisposes uh, ocean fisheries to, uh, to, uh, to, to this study of the development of statecraft is the very fact that they are incredibly dynamic environments. Fish move around a lot. So any attempt that statesmen make to try to divvy up, to try to divide, to try to impose any kind of boundary or lines on uh, these, th- these fisheries will necessarily create problems because fish move around in ways that uh, that statesmen uh, have historically had a very difficult time taking into account. Uh, so, you know, I, 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 I certainly fixate on this fluid nature of these environments to show just how uh, difficult they are to, uh, to control, to legislate. Uh, and I think that can really tell us a lot about how state power operates, how state power works. Uh, and we certainly see that in this case of kind of the, uh, the origins of state power in the United States, you know, from, from the 18th century onward. Absolutely. Let's then get into some of that kind of trickiness, the many ways in which it is difficult to manage for states. Um, you mentioned earlier that there are is a clause. Fisheries are included in the Treaty of Paris that ends the American Revolutionary War. Obviously, that signals that they're one of the important things. Why were fisheries, why was that issue so key to US-British relations immediately after independence? Well, part of it certainly goes back to uh, to the idea that I was just talking about, this sense that... Um, you know the the maintenance of these fishing rights for the United States was in a way a referendum on independence in the 18th or the 1780s 90s and into the uh, 19th century you know the uh, the the independence of the United States the continuation the survival 
of the uh, American experiment is by no means a given. This is a time of great anxiety among uh, American statesmen, among Americans more generally about the survival and the prosperity of the republic. And so because of this close relationship between the fisheries and the idea of independence, uh, you know, statesmen want, you know, very much so prioritize the interest of the fishing industry because it, it, it seems as though to them that should the uh, fishing industry fail should uh, American fishermen be driven away from the fisheries by by British power, then this would be a kind of a uh, something that would undermine the American experiment, would undermine American uh, independence. So uh, the salience of the uh, uh, fishing industry in early American politics is very much so a product of this a kind of close relationship between fisheries and the idea of independence. And even more than that, you know, we also, you know, <laughs> apart from the kind of political meaning of the fisheries, we have to keep in, in mind its economic meaning as well. This was uh, an important uh, industry in, in the United States. Uh, fishing uh, certainly was a, a relatively uh, lucrative business, especially for New England. Fish was sold all across uh, North America to, to the American South, to the Caribbean, uh, back to parts of uh, Europe in the, uh, in the Mediterranean. Uh, so there certainly was a, a, an economic impact of it as well, which uh, you know, helps uh, support um, uh, kind of the political community mobilizing to uh, to defend this uh, this important political resource and this important economic resource. No, absolutely key to make both of those pieces clear. As you've you, I mean, that makes it a very good explanation of why this is an international issue, right? An issue with borders and control and that sort of thing. You also talk about in the book how this topic of fisheries is politically and economically important in terms of the development of US domestic politics, including US partisan politics. What role does fisheries play in the emergence of this aspect of US politics? Yeah, so certainly, uh, you know, as... Americans are trying to figure out this fisheries issue in the first couple decades of uh, American independence. We obviously also have the development of the uh, first party system, the polarization of the uh, Federalists uh, and the Republicans and the kind of uh, nascent political parties that we see uh, kind of developing there. And here, I, I think the fisheries issue, uh, you know, kind of shows some of the uh, complexities and nuances of the era, because so often we just think of this kind of stark divide in the first uh, party system between kind of the, the the Federalists who rally around Alexander Hamilton and this kind of more uh, in, 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 in industrial manufacturing view of the future of the American political economy. And then on the other side, we have the Republicans rallying around Thomas Jefferson and this more agrarian view of the future of the American political economy. But, uh, but what, what, what my research has shown is that uh, there was a strong degree of cross-party uh, agreement on the importance of the fisheries. So while we think of this as being this incredibly fractious time in American politics, both of these parties, the, the Republicans and the Federalists, uh, both agree on the importance of the uh, uh, of the fishing industry and the need for the federal government to 
uh, exercise its power uh, to support the interests of the uh, of the fishing industry. In fact, uh, I, I mentioned the uh, the, the federal cod fishing bounty that Congress enacted in the early 1790s. So this was a yearly payment that the Treasury Department made to uh, cod fishermen to support the industry. It's kind of in this post-war period, uh, the the future prospects of the cod fishing industry were on shaky ground. So there was this belief that the federal government needed to step in to subsidize this industry to ensure its survival into uh into the future. And so, you know, this certainly is kind of an example of kind of the growing power of the American state, of the federal government intervening directly into the economy of, uh, of the early republic. And so this is certainly the kind of, uh, the kind of use of uh, state power that we would associate with the Federalist and with Hamilton. But this was an idea put forward by Thomas Jefferson, you know, this, uh, you know, Jefferson, you know, we so much remember him as being this uh, uh, kind of smaller government advocate who, you know, pushed for an agrarian view of the future of the United States. But he was the architect of this uh, a cod fishing bounty that entailed the federal government intervening directly in economic affairs, uh, distributing money directly to these producers uh, in a way that I think shows just um, just how important the fisheries issue was that we have both Hamilton and Jefferson agreeing on the necessity of the federal government supporting, directly supporting this, uh, this industry. Really interesting um, example, as you said, to add nuance to our understanding of that aspect. Um, moving, well, I guess we're already kind of in the decades post-independence. Um, so I suppose staying in that area for a moment, I'd love to ask you about the Convention of 1818 because you describe it as being, quote, a perfect example of the difficulties of environmental diplomacy. Why? Yeah, so that's uh, the, the the Convention of 18 really uh, looms pretty large um, in, in, in this entire story here uh, because it was the uh, kind of first agreement struck by the United States and Great Britain that set very clear limits on where American fishermen could fish. So after the War of 1812, there was a good deal of disagreement between the United States and Great Britain over kind of the future rights of Americans to fish. Uh, Great Britain uh, the, the British diplomats made the argument that the War of 1812, uh, the outbreak of hostilities, invalidated previous treaties, including the Treaty of Paris that first granted Americans the liberty to take fish. And because the subsequent peace treaty made at Ghent to end the War of 1812 did not address the fisheries, British diplomats made the argument that Americans no longer had that right or that liberty to pursue uh, you know, fish in the North Atlantic. Uh, Americans made quite the opposite argument, saying that uh, the outbreak of hostilities in 1812 did not abrogate that previous treaty. And in fact, in the immediate uh, post-war of 1812 years, in 1816 and 1817, uh, American fishermen returned to uh, to their fishing grounds in the North Atlantic and faced all sorts of kind of capture and seizure by uh, the British Navy, who said that they no longer had that right there. So it created this really tense uh, political situation that needed to be resolved, and that resolution would come in the Convention of 1818 that set very clear limits 
on uh, the rights of American fishermen. The, 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 the treaty stipulated that Americans could fish anywhere um, except for within three marine miles of the coast of Britain's uh, North American colonies in in Canada. So uh, American fishermen could could fish anywhere except for this three mile zone extending from the coastline of Canada. And you know, diplomats thought that this was you know a a kind of great way to set these very clear boundaries that would kind of obviate any kind of confusion in the future, that it was very clear about where Americans could fish, where they couldn't fish, and this would put the issue to bed. But uh, we see very soon thereafter that the kind of clarity diplomats were hoping for was just not there. Uh, and this you know, ha- has a variety of reasons, the most obvious being the difficulty of kind of imposing any kind of border out on the sea. It was very difficult for uh, fishermen to know how close they were into uh, the coastline, whether or not they had uh, kind of violated this invisible three-mile line out in the ocean. And also, of course, fish do not not care at all about uh, the imposition of any kind of boundary out in the sea. So as American fishermen were returning to their uh, to their fishing grounds, they were uh, far less interested in kind of observing the three mile line uh, when they were out there chasing fish that may have you know kind of transgressed that line. So the uh, uh, this this convention very much so shows just how difficult it was for. Uh, politicians or for, for diplomats to bring any kind of order or any kind of rules to this uh, marine environment because the kind of uh, kind of firm set boundary just drawing a line on a map uh, simply did not work uh, in 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 the maritime environment and, and of course you know this the boundaries is one of the few real tools that uh, that these diplomats have and it was just so poorly suited still is poorly suited uh, to the marine environment um, you know all environments are you know in flux are dynamic are constantly changing but uh but you know lines on a map work a little better on land than they do out at sea and uh over the 1820s, 30s, and 40s, uh, the convention of 1818 showed itself to just be very poorly suited uh, to uh, to its job. And in fact, uh, we have a real irony here that the uh, convention of 1818 was intended to end a lot of the confusion and a lot of the clashes out at sea, but really it just creates the conditions for more clashes at sea because the British increasingly use uh, violations of this three-mile line uh, as an excuse to apprehend more fishermen, to capture more American fishing vessels, uh, and, and in that way uh, kind of constrict uh, you know, American fishing prospects in the region. So let's get into that in a bit more detail. This obviously, as you're um, suggesting, happens, <laughs> the convention causes more problems and these tensions last for quite a while. You note in the book that the season of 1824 is particularly bad. Practically speaking, what does that actually mean? What actually happened there? So uh, I, I, I just spent a whole chapter talking about the fishing season of 1824, and I, and I, and I focus on these uh, two American fishing schooners, the Ruby and the Reindeer. They were uh, 
they were from Maine. They were fishing in uh, the Bay of Fundy. And, and I really had this kind of great trove of, uh, of sources that, you know, allows me to really tell this story at a pretty kind of granular, granular level, uh, because both of these fishing vessels were uh, kind of apprehended by the British Navy and, uh, all of the fishermen, all the sailors aboard were forced to give these pretty detailed depositions, uh, first in Halifax and then later back home in Maine. So I had this kind of great account of this, uh, of this fishing season here. And something that these uh, that these sources, you know, indicate is that not only were fishermen kind of dealing with the problems introduced by trying to uh, kind of impose these uh, kind of strict boundaries on the oceanic environment, but what we also see is that by this time, by the mid 1820s, uh, there was this growing fear, this palpable concern uh, about the kind of productivity of these environments. It was becoming clear to the fishermen that um, this environmental resource, these fisheries were being strained. So this adds a real degree of urgency for this fisherman because they have this sense that this resource, this resource they rely upon for their livelihoods is dwindling. And so with, you know, this, uh, this kind of growing sense of scarcity, this certainly uh, kind of aggravates the uh, degree of competition uh, that all fishermen kind of experience as they're all going for this, uh, this resource that seems to be uh, growing smaller and smaller and smaller. And so in the, uh, in the mid 1820s, then we, we, we have kind of the collision of these two things here, this growing sense of scarcity, along with uh, this kind of new, uh, regulatory environment with the imposition of these very strict borders that really leads to this uh, pretty tense confrontation uh, between American fishermen and uh, the British Navy uh, in, in, in 1824 that I, that I detailed through the story of these two particular ships, the Ruby and the Reindeer. It, this is definitely, I think, a moment to point listeners to the book. To If you're interested in all the granular details, um, they really are there and it does kind of bring it all to life. So as you've already mentioned, right, the Convention of 1818 doesn't really work and it causes some problems. You note that by the 1840s in particular, it's really kind of on its last legs. Why is it by that point that it's such a problem? Well, the the, re, the what really exposes the kind of major shortcomings and the problems of the uh, convention of eighteen eighteen have more to do with changes in the environment of the North Atlantic and changes in the fishing industry of the North Atlantic. So, kind of up to this point, largely when I've been talking about fishermen, I've been talking about cod fishermen uh, for centuries, dating back to the colonial period. Cod was the primary. Uh, kind of cash species in the North Atlantic. It was the most valuable uh, fish. It was sold all around the world. And, uh, in, in, you know, it was the mainstay of the industry. But because of a whole set of environmental changes across the first half of the 19th century, the, uh, the kind of codfish community of the North Atlantic begins to dwindle. This has a lot to do with uh, kind of these century-long uh, climactic changes. This comes at the end of the Little Ice Age, uh, this kind of climactic events that extended back until, you know, you know centuries before. Um, so... 
kind of sea temperatures were declining during this period, which was not hospitable uh, for the proliferation of cod. So across the 1830s and the 1840s, uh, we have this drop in uh, the codfish population. Meanwhile, we have a relative rise in the mackerel population with cod going away. Of course, not going away entirely, but just declining. Uh, but, you know, mackerel uh, kind of uh, kind of fills the void left by the cod. So American fishermen realizing that there's this kind of drop in uh, cod stocks begin devoting more attention to uh, fishing for mackerel. And there's also some uh, kind of changes in the uh, in the demand for fish. The American market, the uh, the palate of Americans uh, becomes more open to uh, to mackerel. Uh, so, you know, we have these uh, in- industrial changes. We have these climactic changes uh, that all result in Americans focusing more on catching mackerel than catching cod. And this has a major impact on the diplomatic situation because of the different uh, biology or the different ecologies of these fish. Uh, So by and large, uh, uh, cod are fish that spend most of their life cycle pretty far offshore. They spend most of their time in the the benthic areas of the sea. So they're down on the seafloor. They're out pretty far away from the coast. Uh, So most cod are kind of caught out in the open ocean mackerel, uh, on the other hand, tend to spend most of their life cycle in uh, waters closer inshore, waters that are within three miles of the coastline of Britain's North American colonies. So, you know, as you could already kind of gather here, this is going to create a lot of problems because now American fishermen are devoting far more of their resources to catching a fish that just naturally uh, spends most of its life cycle within the uh, that 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 three mile buffer from the uh, from the coastline. So this means uh, fishermen, uh, you know, to, uh, to 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 kind of you know support their livelihoods are in some ways forced to violate that uh, that that three mile line. So across the 1830s and the 1840s. Um, we see the number of captures of American fishing vessels for violating uh, those uh, those Canadian waters in 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 the North Atlantic uh, kind of increases dramatically, and this will all you know really come to a head uh, in the summer of 1852 with you know this very significant um, kind of a confrontation between the United States and Great Britain. So let's go there then. <laughs> what do you want to tell us about um, what happens in 1852 and especially what it reveals about the continued relations between the U.S. and Great Britain? Yeah. So, you know, across the 1830s and the 1840s, uh, the dynamics I just uh, explained were um, kind of unfolding uh, out on the fisheries. But in the 1840s, we have a development in transatlantic relations that will have an impact on the fishery. So in 18, or, yeah, 1846, uh, Britain, uh, the parliament, repeals the Corn Laws and embraces free trade. This is a real uh, kind of signal moment in the uh, kind of economic and foreign relations history of Great Britain in which it starts to move away from these kind of... Uh, uh, mercantilistic imperial uh, trade laws of the past and embraces this regime of free trade. Um, and so in response to this, you know, real watershed change in policy, 
Britain realizes that free trade will work to the detriment of some of its colonies, including Canada. Uh, Previously, uh, you know, Canadian producers kind of had a guaranteed market uh, with the British Empire. So the production of Canadian goods uh, or Canadian resources like fish, lumber, wheat, coal, uh, you know, had a ready market in England or elsewhere in, in the colonies. Uh, But with the repeal of free trade, now it's not exactly sure who is going to be consuming all of these uh, all of these Canadian produced goods. So uh, in the late 1840s, subsequent uh, 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 ministries in uh, in the British government go about trying to convince the United States to uh, kind of. come to some sort of trading agreement with Canada in order for the United States to become the consumer of all of these Canadian products. Initially, Americans are very uh, unwilling to, uh, to conclude any kind of trade agreement with the Canadians, because after all, much of what Canada produces, uh, the United States already produces, so kind of economically doesn't make a whole lot of sense uh, for this to happen. And so uh, by the early 1850s, uh, you know, London is looking at this situation and they realize that they can use the fisheries issue as a way to exert pressure on the United States to extend a... Um, a trade agreement with Canada. So in the summer of 1852, the Derby administration in London announces to the United States that it is going to start very, very strictly enforcing the Convention of 1818 and use this as a way to remove pretty much all American fishermen from the region. Now, in reality, the Derby administration is not super interested in all the specifics of the fisheries industry and its importance, but they do realize uh, that they can use this, uh, use the fisheries as a kind of cudgel to force uh, the United States into a trading agreement with Canada. So across the summer of 1852, we see more American or we see more British warships mobilized to the region to remove American fishermen from the region. In fact, the uh, the uh, uh, Fillmore administration in Washington uh, dispatches Matthew C. Perry, one of the kind of the greatest naval uh, leader of the era uh, to the region with a flotilla of Navy ships in order to protect uh, American lives and property in the region. And so we had this very kind of tense situation here in which the British Navy, the U.S. Navy are mobilized to the region uh, as it seems as though Britain is threatening to kind of take away this American right to fish in the region, all in, 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 in service of forcing the United States into uh, some kind of trade agreement with uh, with Canada. So th- th- this, this incident, this fisheries dispute of 1852 certainly speaks to uh, kind of the importance of the fisheries in uh, American statecraft, but it also kind of reveals a lot about the state of Anglo-American relations in the mid-19th century, as uh, Britain very much so is kind of strong-arming the United States, this junior partner in the relationship into this trade agreement. In 1854, uh, the United States and Canada signed this uh, reciprocity uh, agreement, um, and, uh, and and so and so this kind of you of power on the part of Britain certainly shows that the uh, the United States is, is, is not quite the uh, the equal of its uh, former imperial master quite yet. 
which couldn't have been the nicest thing to have to deal with. Um, at the beginning, I asked you to sort of help us understand why fisheries were such a big issue in uh, terms of the US relations with Great Britain, as well as within US domestic politics. And we needed that because somewhere between then and now, fisheries have stopped being such a massive issue. That's why I had to ask you the question. So obviously, the curious thing then is when and why did fisheries stop being such a big deal? You pinpoint this as being the 1870s. What's happening then? So in the 1870s, uh, we, we do see this uh, sea change in, uh, in American foreign relations. And a lot of it has to do with just the ongoing rapprochement uh, between the United States and Great Britain, as you've you know, kind of probably been able to guess uh, from the American Revolution until the Civil War, uh, the fisheries is this huge bone of contention between uh, the United States and Great Britain. It's something that they simply cannot figure out, cannot come to any kind of durable, uh, long-standing agreement on how this resource would be used, how it, how it would be administered by either side. And so, you know, in, in each one of these kind of uh, incidents, be it in 1824 or 1852, uh, Americans very much so rally behind uh, fishermen and the fisheries and the fishing industry because there's still this sense that uh, Britain really is attacking American independence when it's going after the fisheries. So America, still this kind of young, developing nation, very jealous of its uh, of its independence, of its sovereignty, of its rights abroad. Uh, but by the 1860s and the 1870s, those things start to change. Uh, Largely, uh, you know, there's this uh, growing confidence in just the existence of the United States. Uh, kind of threats to American independence don't seem uh, quite as threatening as they did in, say, the 1790s and they do in the 1870s. Um, and also uh, uh, American leaders, American statesmen, American businessmen, American politicians, American diplomats, uh, kind of elite Americans, the people who are in charge of the nations of foreign relations begin to realize that uh, kind of future prosperity lies in a rapprochement with Great Britain, that peaceful, cooperative, productive Anglo-American relations uh, are, are more important. Uh, Americans kind of conclude in the 1870s than uh, kind of holding on to this fisheries issue. So what really changes the calculus of uh, of the fisheries issues for American leaders, uh, American politicians, American diplomats, is uh, just the realization that um, uh, kind of defending the rights of American fishermen is getting in the way of what is kind of a bigger fish to fry, so to speak, and that is normalizing relations with Great Britain. So in in some regards, uh, American fishermen are kind of left out on their own um, during this period of amelioration of rapprochement between the United States and, uh, and Great Britain. 
And there's also, uh, you know, some uh, some other things that kind of alienates fishermen from the kind of unquestioned support that the federal government had given them uh, for decades, starting in the 1770s. So in 1866, uh, the federal cod fishing bounty is repealed. Uh, so no longer is the federal government kind of making these uh, direct yearly subsidies uh, to the fishing industry. Uh, then in 1871, uh, we see the creation of the United States Fisheries Commission. So this is a federal organization uh, led by scientists and bureaucrats, uh, people like uh, Spencer Fullerton Baird, people like George uh, Brown Good, um, who are now kind of given control of the management of American fisheries. And so this is kind of the, the cresting of a story that was decades in the making, uh, because for most of the 19th century, it was fishermen who spoke with authority on the condition, the state of of the fisheries. After all, fishermen had the uh, most kind of intimate and sustained interaction, contact with these environments. But by the 1860s and the 1870s, it's these uh, it's these men of scientists, it's these naturalists who begin to exert their intellectual authority on. Uh, issues related to uh, to the fisheries and the creation of the fisheries commission in 1871 you know certainly represents the the triumph of these uh, learned men of science over these kind of blue collar workers in authority for uh, uh for um for you know uh, knowledge about uh, about the fisheries here so in the 1870s uh, you know, kind of for political reasons, uh, for economic reasons, and even for these kind of intellectual reasons, we see the authority of fishermen uh, certainly cut down in these really, uh, really important ways that alienates uh, fishermen from the kind of former patronage and protection of the federal government that they had enjoyed for decades. So speaking of getting rid of patronage and protection, um, our oceans today are in a bit of a state on that front. And you discuss in the book that obviously the creation of some of these government organizations is important, as well as other aspects of the fishing industry at the end of the 1800s, the beginning of the 1900s, very much actually help us explain where we're at today. What are those aspects of the early 20th century fishing industry? Right. So while the kind of federal government turned away from, you know, supporting these small scale individual fishermen that were so important in the early republic, the federal government by no means turned away from supporting the fishing industry more generally. In fact, uh, part of why the fishing bounty was repealed in 1866 was the simple fact that the fishing industry had become so capitalized, so centralized, that these big fishing firms were able to kind of muscle out smaller scale fishermen. And these big fishing firms no longer needed uh, kind of direct uh, federal patronage through uh, through the bounty. Uh, but across kind of the rest of the... Um, the 19th century and into the 20th century, we do see the continuation of um, kind of federal support for this newly industrialized, newly centralized, highly capitalized uh, fishing industry. And I think there we really see uh, the origins of um, 
kind of the conditions that would lead to the fishing crisis of the 20th century, because, uh, you know, federal agencies like the United States Fisheries Commission, uh, their sole purpose was to kind of increase the productivity of fisheries and to increase the effectiveness of American fishermen. So this is a federal agency that sole purpose really is to increase the amount of fish being caught. And so we see the development of this kind of tight relationship between the federal government and uh, and, and the fishing industry that is all in the service of catching more fish, of growing the fishing industry, of making the industry more technologically sophisticated over the course of the late 19th century and into the 20th. Uh, we see the introduction of all different kinds of new and uh, more effective, uh, more efficient fishing technologies. And it's really the Fisheries Commission that plays a big role in developing and proliferating um these uh these uh th- these fishing uh technologies and uh and these new methods of catching fish are just far 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 more ruthless far more effective at just kind of sweeping the ocean clean and uh and, and so this story of overfishing that you know really kind of catches hold across the 20th century and of course you know it's a a problem that we're still dealing with i think has its origins in this late 19th early 20th century period that sees this kind of tight relationship between kind of big fish the big fishing industry and the federal government the government there that is willing to use its power uh, to support uh, these fishing uh, endeavors in ways that has little regard for sustainability, that has little regard for the kind of long-term uh, health of, uh, of, 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 of these ecologies, of these, uh, of these environments. Um, so the, uh, the, the story that, that, that my book tells, I, I think, sheds a lot of light on the uh, the kind of current day problems that the ocean is contending with because uh, overfishing um, this rapacious use of the world's marine resources is in some ways directly tied to governments like the federal government, like the American government, using its power, its prestige, its influence, its resources in order to support these uh, these fishing. Uh, fishing endeavors and 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 what and what my book shows is that this uh, this is a very old story. This is a story that in some ways goes back to uh, you know the very foundation of the uh, of the United States, right at kind of the the moment of birth of the United States. We see uh, the origins of this relationship between fishing, the fishing industry, and uh, and the federal government. And um, while the specifics have changed dramatically. Uh, over the centuries, um, I think the, uh, the the core part of the story that uh, the federal government has used its power to support the fishing industry uh, has has you know kind of remained true throughout American history. And it's a really important history to be aware of, given the issues we're facing today and what we're trying to do about them. Understanding, as you said, just how far back this relationship goes is a crucial piece of that. So thank you very much for taking us through the book, right all the way up to the present. Um, leaving well, we kind of only... jumped quickly over the 20th century. Uh, that's true. We did. <laughs> that, you know, that that. That's fine. Um, that still gives us context to where we are and, of course, how we got here. 
I therefore only have one last question. Um, is there anything you might be working on now that the book is over? Whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this topic, you'd like to preview for us? Uh, sure, yeah. So, so I am working on, on a second book, and it is about a very different time and place. But I think thematically, uh, there are some similarities with this with this earlier book here. So my next book is going to be about the fishing industry on the coast of Texas during the kind of second half of the 20th century. And in particular, this project focuses on this period in the late 1970s and early 1980s, uh, because after the Vietnam War ended, you know, thousands of Vietnamese refugees came to and settled into the in the United States. And uh, thousands of these refugees found their way to the Gulf Coast, to the coast of Texas, and many of them entered the, the fishing industry, fishing for shrimp, fishing for crab. And this occasioned a, um, a, a real dramatic series of disputes and violent confrontations because the existing fishermen in Texas did not you know, take too kindly to all of these outsiders uh, settling in the region and kind of entering this really competitive industry that itself was going through a whole host of economic and ecological changes that made fishing more and more difficult. And, and the book's going to focus on this, uh, this uh, this incident in the summer of 1979 in which a, uh, a Vietnamese fisherman uh, murdered a white fisherman. And this came after months and months of kind of confrontation and bullying between the two. And ultimately, the uh, uh, the, the, uh, the the Vietnamese man was acquitted in trial. Uh, he he got off on a, on a self-defense uh, a, 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 a self-defense plea. And in uh, in this but but this ignited a whole series of disputes all along the Gulf Coast in which, uh, you know, the Ku Klux Klan gets involved, the uh, Department of Justice gets involved, and there's this really intense period in which, uh, you know, kind of these Vietnamese fishermen are being harassed constantly uh, up and down, uh, up and down the coast. And so what this book is going to do is look at how uh, you know, how, how can we look to the environment to help explain this story? Because so many of the arguments against the inclusion of Vietnamese people in uh, in the fishing industry ultimately are based in an argument about a uh, disease declining environment. Uh, uh, white fishermen on the coast make the argument that uh, Vietnamese people should not be allowed to fish uh, because there just aren't enough fish uh, fish to go around. And so I want to take uh, you know those sorts of arguments seriously and see if we can place the environment as uh, kind of a causative factor in this conflict, in this violence, in this, in this dispute uh, between these two groups. So. Obviously, this uh, this uh, story is uh, quite far removed from you know my cod fishermen in the North Atlantic, but I think they uh, both have similarities in using uh, the marine environment to help explain uh, conflict uh, and and violence that has uh, arisen between various groups in American history. Well, thank you for previewing that for us, um, and best of luck with that project. While you're working on it, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, again, titled The Liberty to Take Fish, Atlantic Fisheries and Federal Power in 19th Century America, published by Cornell University Press in 2023. Blake, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you for having me.